Welcome to another special episode of Stats and Stories. I'm Rosemary Pennington, and this week we wrap up our partnership with Significance Magazine and the Royal Statistical Society. We've been hearing with guests from the RSS International Conference in Belfast, Ireland. Today, we start off with an interview from Significance Magazine editor Brian Taran. He talks with Lancaster University's Harry Spearing about extreme value theory and its use in sports. Hi, this is Brian Tarran at RSS Conference 2019 in Belfast. I'm here today with Harry Spearing of uh, Lancaster University. Hello, Harry. Hello. Hello. And we're talking uh, about uh, the ranking of Olympic swimmers. So before we get into that, Harry, do you want to tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm studying at Lancaster University. Um, I also did my undergrad there as well in physics. Um, and now I'm looking at some of my PhDs in ranking systems of sports uh, generally. and um, so specifically at the moment, I'm looking at swimmers. So ranking systems in sports then, they are ways of organizing uh, competitors, teams, that sort of thing. So why, yeah. why would a statistician be interested in that as a, as a topic? Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose the ranking system itself can tell you quite a lot about the nature of the sport, um, particularly if you're looking at ranks over time as well. So you can see how players get better over time and worse over time, and if there's some element of form in that. Um, and then also, um, you might be interested in looking across discipline. So, is it possible to rank across various sports as well, um, not just within the same sports? Okay. And what are the sort? Because um, I think most people, if they're not statisticians, would think, well, it's pretty easy to rank people, right? You put yeah. the best one first, and <laughs> so on and so on. But there's, there must be deeper statistical questions or yeah. issues that need to be resolved. And what are, what's a, what are some of those problems? Yeah, of course. So, obviously, I mean, the first one. I mean, the most obvious one that's challenging, I suppose, is to try and rank players within team sports. So obviously, there's lots of debate about who the best player, football player in the world was. You know, obviously, people might say Messi, Ronaldo, etc. But actually, that's really difficult to ascertain because obviously they're playing within a team, and so the team's performance is easy to rank, like you say. But that doesn't necessarily tell you that much about the individual players themselves. Um, and so, of course, that's when we would like to pull out that information about the individuals. So you're trying to decouple the effects of sort of, you know, what what is, how good is the player with or without the team, right? So yeah. there must be some effect of um, that combination of, you know, Messi with all the other team players around him that make him better than he may otherwise be or rank him higher than he yeah. might otherwise be. Yeah, that's right. So that's, yeah, so that's just one aspect of it. Um, so things like um, basketball, they have plus-minus statistics, which says how good the team does with and without the player and things like that. So that's quite useful. But then there's also things like, so if you are interested in ranking the team and not the player, then even that's quite challenging because, you know, the team's form changes. So you might have injuries from one week to the next. They might be playing more difficult opponents. So just they're looking at their form in the last five games isn't actually that useful to um, tell you how well the team's doing overall, really. Okay, so, you're, so the area you're talking about here at conference is uh, swimming. Yeah, that's right. Um, so is it swimming Is it swimming teams, like relay teams? Or something no, like so it is individuals, individuals here, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and so how is it you're looking at ranking these swimmers and how does it differ from, say, just simply looking at, you know, what's your time, what's your finish position? Yeah, okay, so swimming's quite different to team sports and things like that and um, even things like tennis and for the simple reason that... Um, you have an objective measurement of how good someone is. You have their time, which you don't have for any other sports. You're always looking at pairwise comparisons. Um, so you have to treat it in quite a different way. Um, so we're using 
So we're looking at the very best swimmers, we're looking at um, Olympic swimmers. Um, and so because we're looking at the very best times, we can treat these observations as being quite extreme observations. Um, and then for that reason, we can use apply extreme value theory to these to this data set to try and analyze the swimmers. And can you describe extreme value theory for people? Yeah, sure. So extreme value theory is kind of what it says really on the tin. It's basically the study of extreme events. Um, and it's kind of like, so when, what we find is that um, analyzing data, the bulk of the distribution in general uh, is quite interesting, but often that's not really what we're interested in. So, if, for example, if you're looking at heights of rivers or, or the amount of rain, um, generally we're not typically interested in the amount of rain on average from day to day. What we're interested in is the extreme rain, because that's when we've got problems with flooding and things like that. So trying to model extreme events is what it's all about, really. So, so how, what sort of questions are you able to answer um, by, by looking at these swimmers through the lens of extreme value theory? Yeah, so we can try to answer, there's a few questions we'd like to answer. So obviously the first one is, first and foremost, it's a ranking system. So we want to be able to rank swimmers in a fair and really unbiased way. Um, and currently the way FINA do it, which is sort of the international body, is that they um, just compare how close someone is to the world record in their discipline. So if it's 50 meter breaststroke, how close are you to the 50 meter breaststroke world record, for example? And the problem with this is that everyone's times are really sensitive to this one data point. If the world record changes, for example, your overall rank can change significantly. And so what we're trying to do is um, use extremes to model the whole body of these really um, sort of extreme events to make it sort of, yeah. Okay. So would you, uh, it, it, is it about then trying to identify, so obviously in sw uh, swimming, I guess the maybe the, the extreme performance of an athlete would be their personal best, but they might not be yeah. hitting their personal best competition after competition, right? So is it yeah. about trying to identify where people are, where, where you're ranking people based on those personal best times or the, the main body of their times or what yeah. they're kind of... So currently, yeah. So currently, what we're doing is looking at personal bests, um, but that is actually something that we're kind of looking at next: is how how can we incorporate all the times to get a better idea of the ability of that swimmer. Um, but yeah, that's that's quite a challenging sort of next step. But yeah. So the idea then, I guess, would if you can if you can apply this method and um, uh, the, the difference between what you're proposing and what the sort of current uh, swimming uh, association. <coughs> system is would be to have, maybe have a more stable measure of performance so it's not quite so sensitive to yeah well, more stable right. measure of ranking so it's not yeah. quite so sensitive to that well yeah record that's number. right yeah so the rank system yeah the, the aim is to make it sort of more stable and more fair but, but the interesting thing is that there's lots more um sort of uh, we can get lots more out of the framework not just the ranking so we set up this really nice framework but actually we find other things so we can try and predict when the next world record will happen and um, we can try and predict what the world record will be, and we can try and predict what event it's most likely to be broken in next, all these sort of things, and we can even sort of adjust the technology. So I don't know if you remember, they had the, the swimsuits, like the full body suits at one point, and which are now banned, but they make people a lot faster. <clears throat> so we can try and adjust for those times um, to make it fair across time as well. Excellent. And so obviously, you've probably got a great test case coming up next year with the yeah, exactly. Olympics. So <laughs> yeah. are you trying to get all your, your sort of the methodology sorted, the yeah. analysis sorted, so then you can apply it to 
That's right, yeah. Olympics. All right. So I'm hoping to make a couple of predictions for that and see, see how well they go. Well, yeah. I, would, I will invite you now. Uh, to, if, if you do make those predictions, we'd love to uh, write about them in Significance magazine. Okay, so, yeah. so do Thanks. get in touch. But until that time, Harry, thank you for talking to us today. And I uh, hope your talk goes well. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks so much, Brian. And to close out our partnership with RSS, we have Jen Rogers interviewing biostatistician Amy Jane McKnight. Hi, I'm Jen Rogers, and I'm uh, Vice President for External Affairs at the Royal Statistical Society. And I'm at our annual conference, which this year comes from the ICC in Belfast. I'm with Amy Jane McKnight, who has just delivered a lecture looking at the analytical challenges of harmonizing data. So AJ, it's lovely to speak to you. Um, I really enjoyed your lecture. Um, can you just give us a brief summary as to what it is that you were talking about? Yes, Jen, thank you very much. So it's a pleasure to be here. So essentially what I was talking about is the challenges of harmonizing data across centers, integrating different data types, and also some of the pre-processing issues that we have that are associated with big data analysis. Yeah, I was really interested. So I've not really delved into genomic data before. I've done the odd little bit and I know of it. Um, but I was super interested at some of the challenges that you were going through when using genomic data and all the differences that you can have, sort of different parts of the body that it's taken from. Can you give a summary or outline? What are the challenges? Because I was amazed. So when it comes to genetic data, looking at SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, there's fairly well established workflows for quality control at every stage of that type of analysis. However, what we know now is that not just the material that you inherit from parents to offspring, the genetic SNP data that really matters, but also how that is integrated with someone's environment. So the medication they take, the diet they eat, the exercise they take, all has an impact on their disease risk or on behavioral trait risks. That type of analysis is called epigenetics, and increasingly more and more people are looking at DNA methylation as a primary marker of epigenetic analysis. When it comes to epigenetics, there are many more quality control steps that have to be considered. So for example, if we have DNA from someone's saliva sample, DNA from someone's venous blood sample, or DNA from a tissue type like the eye or a kidney biopsy, they will all have very specific DNA methylation patterns. So we can't compare a whole epigenome pattern from kidney to a whole epigenome pattern from venous blood because they have very distinct profiles. So that's one thing that needs to be considered in the analysis. Um, there are different platforms, different chemistries available to enrich your DNA before you do the analysis. All of those enrichment or amplification steps, very, very keen to highlight, they all amplify different regions of the genome slightly differently. So for some, they will over amplify um, cytokines, others will over amplify other inflammatory markers. So you're not really comparing like for like unless you use the same chemistry up front. Um, when you do the analysis and you're converting from for example, high density arrays, the original data is intensity in red and green dyes. When you're converting from those red and green dyes to your beta values that are typically used for the analytical processes of methylation, there's important pre-processing steps that need to be considered. Lots of different software tools are available to do that analysis for you, but they all do it slightly differently. So again, you can't compare like for like. You need to make sure there is one analytical profile and you need to make sure that it's the same pipeline that's used for all of the different studies for meta-analysis. One thing that's really, really critical for methylation is depending on where your source material comes from. So your method of DNA extraction, it doesn't matter whether it's from saliva or from blood, if you use a different kit to extract your DNA, you'll have different methylation profiles. 
if your DNA is stored, extracted and stored at minus 80 degrees is the gold standard, perfect. But if your DNA is left on the bench for any length of time, the methylation patterns will degrade. And again, you're not comparing like for like. So those sample storage considerations are really, really important for both DNA methylation and for gene expression, RNA analysis. Now this, I mean, it blew my mind and it sounds like it's just a melting pot of disaster waiting to happen. Um, whose responsibility is it to be aware of all of these different issues? Does the book fall with you know, clinicians and medics or is it with us as statisticians? Do we need to be aware of all of these things? I think it's one of those issues that really highlight the need for multidisciplinary approach to research projects up front. So you need to have everybody in the room talking together. You need the clinician who knows the phenotype. You need the laboratory expert who's doing the analysis or perhaps outsourcing it to a different center. You need the bioinformaticists and the statisticians who are doing the downstream analysis. So everybody working together to get an idea of where the problems may be and what's the best study plan to overcome those because you can't beat a really good study design with the best one in the world. There's no modeling approach that can correct for a poor study design up front. And how often do you think that happens? So how often do you think that all of these things are actually considered and taken into account and allowed for them in the analysis? Rarely. So I think an issue is that we're only really becoming aware of the necessity and the importance of these kind of early stage studies. So a lot of the analysis that's done currently is based on historical or longitudinal cohorts. And we just didn't know these things were an issue. So if you look at publicly available data now that's in public repositories, you find that somewhere between a tenth and two thirds of it will have issues with sample contamination, with gender mismatches, with quality control probes that haven't met the kind of minimum standards that we use in 2019 today. Some of that's because we know more about the quality control and we now implement more stringent approaches. Um, some of it might be that in the public repositories, there is no tick box that says, yes, this sample passed or no, this one didn't. So wow. if you're doing meta-analysis on publicly available data, yeah you actually don't know necessarily whether or not those samples have passed basic quality control or not. So what is the knock-on effect then for all of the research that's been done in the past? Can we use it or do we have to now just dismiss it all and say, actually, it wasn't good enough? So I would say that generating the data is a major expense. Once the data is generated, we need to use it as best as we possibly can. So there have been a number of publications that have looked at genome-wide association studies or epigenome-wide association studies and said, actually, that data was published five to 10 years ago. When we redo the analysis with today's quality control, what was shown up as top-ranked findings associated with disease are now thrown out in the quality control rubbish. So those top-ranked markers originally published in high-quality journals just don't meet today's standards of quality control. And you said that sort of, you know, different platforms and different even ways of extracting um, you know, saliva or blood, that you have to make sure you're using the same kit every single time. Um, why are we not just producing one type of kit that everybody uses so that we don't have all of these issues? Um, so I guess that's a good question, probably one for the market researchers on the genomic <laughs> companies. Um, I think each of the companies are always trying to say, we do something better, we do something better. And you're trying to drive science forward. And without that competition, you don't have the drive to continually improve the methods and approaches. But I guess one thing to highlight is that even if two laboratories use the same kit, if it's in two laboratories in two geographical locations with different lots and batch numbers, you may well get different results. 
So one thing that's really, really keen to emphasize is that you need to have a certain number of experimental controls included in every batch of the analysis that you're doing, whether it's five years between the batches or whether it's week to week between the batches. Make sure you have one control sample that's included in every analysis that you do, because that's how you can help control for your systematic issues in the wet lab laboratory. Yeah. And what do you think then is the future for this area of research? I mean, I, I can. are you just going around to loads of medical conferences and just giving this talk so that everyone is aware of this? Um, so that going forward, better analysis can be done? This is the third time I've given a talk on this type of topic. And there's plenty of other researchers that will um, give talks on a similar theme. It's something we're all becoming more and more aware of. I think the best thing to do is to make the data publicly available to bona fide researchers albeit with your proper ethics and governance approval. Um, but what's really, really important is when you're reporting the results, make sure you're reporting very open and transparent manner. So exactly what was done, what software was used, what version was used, what kit was used, because all of that will help inform how the data is used downstream. And I think we are potentially going to learn some really important lessons from this about probably lots of other areas of medicine. You know, we're now automating lots and lots of things and everybody's probably developing their own software to be able to do it their own even ai algorithms to be able to do it um and yeah i think that the the things the issues that you're talking about here probably going to give us some really important lessons to learn across a whole area like a whole different variety of medical applications um so i found it really interesting. I'd be interested to know what is, what's been the response from medics and clinicians when you start talking to them about these sorts of things? Shock and awe, mostly. It's not something anybody had considered. You think you spend all of this money collecting samples, you do your due diligence, you have lots of biological resources, and you, you've created what you think is a fabulous bioresource linked to really good phenotype and social demographic information. And then somebody in the laboratory does the analysis and says, well, actually that's rubbish because your DNA samples weren't collected appropriately in the first place, so we can't do what you wanted to do. So I think it's there's a measure of it being completely and utterly soul-destroying. Yeah. Um, and I would definitely emphasize, if anyone's thinking of creating a bioresource, get in touch with the lab experts and the data scientists and statisticians up front. Yeah, I think this is uh, an example of where that, as you said, that multidisciplinary approach is just vital for it to be able to work. Um, I really enjoyed your lecture. I found it absolutely fascinating and I had no idea that there were all these sorts of issues. You know, as a statistician, you just get given the data and you assume that everything's okay with it and you just go ahead and analyze it. So you really opened my eyes up um, and I'd like to just say a huge thank you for the lecture because it was great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jen. That's it for our partnership with Significance Magazine and the Royal Statistical Society. We'd like to thank all the hosts and guests who were able to appear on the show. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your comments to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future episodes of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.